I don't know about you, but once I start to see the Christmas tree and the garland and the lights come up, I, I kind of get excited, right? I start to feel the anticipation of the Christmas season. Part of that could be that my wife does all the Christmas shopping for our family, so I'm not thinking about that. Probably should be. But for me, the Christmas season is like a joyous just moment of anticipation and of excitement. And part of that, I think, goes back to uh, my family Christmas traditions growing up. And you probably, at this time of year, kind of thinking about your family Christmas traditions. Uh, But for our family, uh, usually sometime after Thanksgiving, which is the appropriate time to decorate for Christmas. I know some of y'all are pre-Thanksgiving people. My opinion, jump in the gun, but we can debate that later. Uh, After uh, Thanksgiving, we would decorate for Christmas. And and our tradition was that my parents would buy donuts and hot chocolate, and we would uh, gather and put on Christmas music, and we'd drink hot chocolate and eat donuts, and we would decorate the house. And, and as a little boy, that's the moment where for me it was like, Christmas is coming. And I would be filled with anticipation and excitement and probably ask my parents every day, is it Christmas? Is it today? Uh, and finally, you know, on Christmas Eve night, right, you kind of hit that like peak anticipation and excitement. Christmas is in the morning. And of course, we would wake up super early. We'd wake up my parents and we'd be sitting in the living room. And my least favorite Christmas tradition is that as we were sitting in the living room, my dad would go, yeah, I'm going to take a shower. We're like, we're all here ready to open presents. And he would take the world's longest shower. And looking back, I'm like, does he not know that scripture says fathers don't exasperate your children? Uh, Because I want to like quote that to him. Like, you need to repent still from what you did when we were anticipating Christmas. But it was like the the peak, like anticipation and excitement. And I think in a lot of ways that encapsulates the Advent season. It is a season of anticipation. It is a season of waiting. And so as we enter the Advent season, as we light the candles, we're, we're thinking back to the Old Testament time. What must it have been like for the people of Israel to long for, to wait, to anticipate the arrival of the Messiah? As believers post New Testament, where Jesus has come and died on the cross and resurrected, we're now anticipating and waiting for the second coming of Christ. And so in a lot of ways, the Advent season is a season of hope, and we light the candles of joy and peace and love. And so it's it's this season of lots of just great things of anticipation. Yet, have you noticed on the Christmas Eve service, if you've come, there's this moment in the Christmas Eve service where the lights go dark, and and we light a candle off of the Christ candle, and, and we spread that light through the sanctuary. And it's this moment where we sort of reenact Isaiah 9. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And it's a reminder that the hope of Christ has come, and we await the the arrival of Christ's second coming and the final fulfillment of that hope that he'll bring. And that's why we celebrate love and joy and hope and peace and all of these great, joyous, hope-filled things. And yet, before we light the candles, there's this moment of deep darkness. And I wonder sometimes at Advent if we don't skip the darkness and jump right to the light. And yet I think Advent is an invitation not just to light the Christ candle and to see the light spread. It's also an invitation, I think, church, to wait in that moment of darkness. To remember and recognize that the world is is broken and in need of hope. One of the key questions of Advent is, when is the Lord going to show up? When is God going to make himself known? And every year, as a church, we remember and sort of reflect on that reality as we think of what it must have been like for the Old Testament people. And yet, church, I think some of us are asking that question, when is God going to make himself known? Not in an Advent anticipation way. Some of us are asking that question in a very real and frustrated way in the Advent season. 
Because, well, yes, Advent is about joy and hope and peace and love. Some of us are in a season of waiting when we're, uh, we're navigating a season of trial, a season of challenge, a season of struggle. And some of us are asking that Advent question in a very real way, saying, God, when are you going to make yourself known? And, and maybe this Advent season, you're navigating grief. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one that happened recently. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one that happened years ago, and yet the grief is renewed around Christmas. Maybe you're navigating a situation of loss. Maybe it was the loss of a friendship that you really valued that just for whatever reason fell apart and you can't reconcile it. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the loss of health. Maybe you're navigating a challenging marriage situation and something happened and you didn't see it. And now we're trying to figure this out and it's hard and it's difficult and it's challenging. And you're like, I don't even feel like Advent season. And there's that hope. God, when will you show up? And I think Advent appropriately invites us into that question. And so here's what I want us to wrestle with today. How do we navigate a painful season where we're tempted to doubt God's purpose and provision for us? How do we do that? And, and, And particularly, what does Advent have to teach us about that question? Because we like to jump right through the darkness, right to the hope of the light, right to the great things that we have to celebrate. And that's good. But we have to recognize that for some of us, where we're living in that tension of challenge and brokenness, Advent has a lot to teach us about that place. So how do we navigate a painful season where we're tempted to doubt God's purpose and provision? As we do this, I'm going to bring us through Matthew, uh, parts of Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. And, and here's why I think this is important. is Many of us, if you've been in the church for a long time, you have probably read the Christmas uh, narratives of Jesus' birth a lot of times. And what's, what's interesting for me is sometimes I get so familiar with the passage that I kind of just read right through it. And it's like, oh yeah, this is great. And I'm not even really thinking about what I'm reading. And so I want to draw us into the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, because I think it has a lot of wisdom to help us learn how to navigate that season of, God, when are you going to show up? And I think it hinges around two really important dynamics. It's the dynamic of God's promise, and it's the dynamic of a problem that emerges that Mary and Joseph have to overcome. So let's start walking through this. In Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 21 to 23, we see the fulfillment of this beautiful promise of the Messiah. Matthew 1, 21 says this, she, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you're alive at this time, like for Mary and Joseph, as they're hearing this prophecy, I mean, this is the fulfillment of something that Israel had waited for generations and generations for. Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins, is arriving. And there's this beautiful promise-filled moment where the promise of the Messiah is being brought to fulfillment and completion. A moment of incredible joy. But then, right on the heels of that, in Matthew chapter 2, this very significant problem emerges in terms of Herod's response of anger and opposition to that prophecy. And sometimes, church, we've navigated a season of promise, a season that's hope-filled, and then what happens is we encounter a challenging season, a moment of trial or struggle or challenge and difficulty, and everything we believed about God in the moment of promise, we call into question in the moment of the problem. When our circumstances begin to fall apart, we start to go, God, where are you? We just had this promise, we see the promises of Scripture, and now we're navigating this difficult moment. How do we get through it? 
let's dive into Matthew chapter two as we look at the problem of Herod's response of anger and opposition. Beginning in verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way and the the star they had seen when it rose went overhead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was uh, said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So think about this, right? Mary and Joseph in chapter one, they have this beautiful moment of promise where they are told that Mary, even though she's a virgin, is going to give birth to a son, and they're to name him Jesus, which means that God will save his people from their sins. And they're to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's this beautiful moment of of seeing the promise of God come to fulfillment. Right on the heels of that, in Matthew chapter 2, there's this moment where the Magi, who are likely uh, wise advisors or counselors from another country, um, some scholars think Persia, they arrive from the east and they're following the star. And, and they do what makes sense. They go to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, and they appear before uh, the person who has the authority and the power at that time in Israel. They appear before King Herod. And then they tell him, we saw the star and we followed it. We want to know, where's the one who was born king of Israel? That, that phrase, the one born king of Israel, that's messianic language. Now, for the people of Israel, this should be a season of great rejoicing. It should be a season of triumph. What God has promised is being brought to fulfillment. But did you notice Herod's response in verse 3? Herod hears that phrase, the one born king of the Jews, verse 3, he says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. King Herod doesn't go, yes, the Messiah's here. King Herod goes, what do you mean, born king of the Jews? 
Now, Herod is disturbed because Herod has no uh, right to the throne of Israel. He was not born in kingly lineage. The only reason that Herod is on the throne is because of his close ties to the empire of Rome, which has conquered Israel. And so when Herod hears that the one born king of Israel has arrived, what he hears is a threat to his power, a threat to his authority, a threat to his agenda. And so Herod isn't rejoicing, he's disturbed. Now these magi who are before him going, okay, we want to go worship the king. Where do we find him? Herod calls together the chief priests, the teachers of the law. These are the experts about the matter. And they remind him that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod goes back to the magi and he says, here's what I want you to do. He goes, the Messiah is is in Bethlehem. I want you to follow the star. And then I want you to go and worship this one who's born king of Israel. And when you do, I want you to come back and tell me so that I can also go and worship this child. Now, if you've read the story, you know that Herod has no intention of actually going and worshiping Jesus, right? In fact, he wants to kill Jesus. So the Magi go and, and they worship Jesus and they're warned not to go back to Herod. And so they return to their country, it says, by another route. And there's Mary and Joseph who were in Bethlehem already, not their, their hometown. They're in Bethlehem because the Roman government had declared that they had to return to their hometown to take a census. And they've been living in this community. It's likely that Jesus is between 18 months, two years old at this point raising a toddler in a hometown that's not their own. And now the Magi show up and worship him, which is a great moment of joy. And then right on the heels of that, they are warned in a dream to flee to Egypt because somebody wants to kill Jesus. Now imagine being Mary, right? She's holding her baby and she looks down at him and somebody has a death threat on my child? And we read this and we're like, Mary and Joseph, and we've, so, like, we've cartoonized the story, so we've removed the humanity out of those that are involved. I mean, imagine what Mary and Joseph are thinking. Imagine what goes through Joseph's mind when he's warned in a dream. He goes, I mean, but uh, Jesus, you want me to, or God, you want me to go to Egypt? We don't have anything in Egypt, right? We don't have family there. We don't have a community there. You want us to go to a country that's not our own with a toddler. Now, for me, I have most of my family is in Indiana, and we usually travel at Christmas time to see them. And it's about a 12-hour car ride. Now, our kids are a little bit older now, so it's not terrible. But when our kids were like five, three, and one, it was like purgatory, right? So we drive to Indiana, and my wife is very strategic. She likes to drive. She says because she gets car sick. It's really because if she's driving, I have to break up the fights and pacify the children. So she's smart, right? So she'll be driving, and the kids will be like just in a, a mess in the back seat. They're crying. I'm crying. And I'm like, can we just get to Indiana, right? And if they ask me one more time for a snack or if we're there, I'm like, listen, I will open this door and roll into the ditch, right? Don't think I won't. I will escape. Because it's just like, sometimes it just drives you crazy. And that's, that's in the relative comfort of a heated car. You know, it's, it's really not that bad, right? Now, imagine Mary and Joseph, right? They're... They're in Bethlehem, a town that's not their own. They're warned now to flee to Egypt, a country that's not their own. And Joseph has to load up their stuff, maybe on a donkey, we're not told. And they travel through the wilderness to a country where they have no roots. And by the way, like, they can't just like Google Maps, where's the next 7-Eleven, or is there a hotel? None of that's there, right? This is a journey through the wilderness with a two-year-old who, by the way, has a death threat on his life. What do you think is going through Mary and Joseph's mind at this point? 
They've just had this promise that the Messiah is coming. If I'm Joseph, I'm mad. If I'm Joseph, I'm like, God, why are you not protecting us? Why do we have to flee Herod? Why do we have to run through the desert? Why can't we just have a moment of peace? And so here's this question again. I think, how do we navigate a painful moment where we're tempted to doubt God's purpose and provision for us? Now, it never says that Joseph doubted. I'm saying if I'm Joseph, I would be doubting. You want me to help raise the Messiah born of the Virgin Mary, and yet you're calling us to flee through the desert to Egypt? And maybe for some of us this morning, you're in your own metaphorical journey through the wilderness this Advent season. Maybe, again, you're navigating that place of grief or pain or loss, and you're like, God, why are you not showing up? You're asking that Advent question, but in a frustrated way, Lord, where are you? Why are you not present? Why are you not seeing me through this? So how do we begin to navigate it? And I think as we begin to look at this story, we see wisdom for how to navigate those really difficult, challenging, and painful moments. What what strikes me in this passage is that for Mary and Joseph, one of the key things was to trust God's promise, purpose, and provision. So for us, as we're going to navigate difficult moments, we have to come back to a place of trusting God's promise, purpose, and provision. And as I read this story, what what strikes me is that God is continually guiding and directing and protecting Mary and Joseph in hard moments. Multiple times, Joseph is warned in a dream, and it's God guiding and providing and protecting them. Now, I think what we do is we look at this, and Mary and Joseph, sure, they're protected, but God doesn't save them from the challenge of the journey to Egypt. And I think sometimes what happens is God is at work. He's bringing his purpose in our life to completion, but he doesn't do it in the way that we want. If I'm Joseph, I'm going, God, protect me by making me not run away to Egypt, a country that's not my own, a place where I don't belong. Can you just take care of Herod? And yet, God doesn't take care of Herod. That threat is still there, but he provides provision and protection even on their journey through the wilderness. And there's something about that journey through the wilderness that is part of God's purpose for Mary and Joseph. And part of what strikes me as you read this text is there's two places. Once in verse 15... It says where they stayed in Egypt until the death of Herod. Catch this. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said. Again, in verse 23, when they go to Nazareth, it says, and so was fulfilled. And that little phrase, so was fulfilled, is really important. It means God's purpose was being brought to fulfillment. And there's something about the journey to Egypt. There's something about being displaced again in Nazareth. There's something about those challenge moments that was still part of God's purpose. And God was active and doing something in the life of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And I think, church, sometimes when our circumstances aren't what we want, we doubt that God's purpose is present in challenging circumstances. But part of it is trusting and believing that even moments where our circumstances aren't what we would have hoped, that God is still unfolding his purpose that there's something that he's doing. It's what the New Testament says, being confident of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work, will carry it on to completion. And I think when we're in the desert moment, when we're in the season of challenge, we doubt that God is fulfilling his purpose in our life. And we let our circumstances define our response of faith or lack of faith. But but here, I think, is is the real question, right? I, I can say we need to trust God's promise, purpose, and provision, But part of me goes, okay, that's easy to say, hard to do. How how do we actually move towards a place of trusting God in the middle of a moment where our circumstances aren't what we had hoped? 
how might Mary and Joseph on their journey to Egypt where maybe they're, they're tired and they're worn out and they're exhausted and they just want the death threat of, on their child's life to be gone. How do they navigate a place of trust in that moment? And part of what strikes me, church, as we read this passage, is that there is importance in recognizing Jesus' identity and Jesus' purpose and his power. If we're going to trust him, we need to understand who he is, what he's capable of, and what he came to do. And, and I've read Matthew chapter 2, I don't know how many times around the Christmas season, and I'd always missed how much Matthew chapter 2 talks about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So let, let's walk through this and, and see where we see a revelation of Jesus' identity, of his purpose, and of his power. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is revealed to us as king. The Magi arrive and they ask, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? What this means, church, is when we acknowledge Jesus as king, we're recognizing that he's the one that has authority. We're recognizing that he's the one who is ultimately in control. And the Magi ask this question, who's the one born king of Israel, to Herod, who is himself a king. And what this reminds us of is it might look like Herod is in control, but what we recognize is that King Jesus is actually in control, that he's the one who is truly sovereign. Now, here's the challenge of recognizing Jesus as king. If we're going to recognize Jesus as king, that means he also needs to be king over my life. We'll, we'll talk about this in a second. I like to recognize Jesus as Messiah, as the one who saves, but I struggle, church, to acknowledge Jesus as king, the one who asks for my surrender. If I'm going to acknowledge Jesus as king, I have to say, Jesus, you are king of my life. I will submit and surrender my agenda to you. The problem is then when Jesus leads me through a challenging season, I'm going, no, 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 not, not like that. In my agenda, I, I tend towards comfort and convenience, and, and I like control. Do you like control? It feels nice. Like, I, I know what's going on. I, I'm calling the shots in my own life. And yet, if I'm truly going to acknowledge Jesus as king, what he says to me is, Aaron, you need to surrender your agenda to my agenda. And, and sometimes, church, I respond like Herod. I go, no, 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 your agenda is a threat to my agenda. I, I, I don't want to surrender to you, Jesus. I want to maintain control. And what happens is it's not until I'm led through a difficult season that I realize that I never had control. The control was an illusion all along. And once God says, okay, you want to try it? And I get myself in trouble and I go, Lord, save me. Then he says, will you acknowledge me as king? Aaron, you don't know what's best for your own life. You need to surrender it to me. And I think, church, there's freedom when we truly acknowledge Jesus as king and surrender our purpose into his purpose. To saying, Lord, I'm no longer going to live my life for my own self. I'm going to surrender it over to you. Lord, would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you direct me? Would you be truly king of my life? Not only is Jesus revealed as king, he's revealed as Messiah. Notice what happens when the Magi come and they say, tell us, where's the one who's born king of Israel? In verse 4, Herod responds and he says this, he called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. Again, these are the experts on the matter. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now the Magi didn't ask for the Messiah. They asked for the one born king of Israel. But Herod knows the one born king of Israel will be the Messiah. And the, the word Messiah is the anointed one, the one who saves, the one who rescues his people. And so not only is Jesus king, not only is he the one who's in control and the one who's sovereign, but he's also the one who saves and who rescues his people. And so if we're going to trust God in the middle of a difficult or challenging season where we feel uh, the, the, the effects of loss and mourning and grief, when we're going to navigate those things well, 
It's not just a blind trust. It's coming back to scripture and saying, Lord, we acknowledge that you are king, that you're in control. We acknowledge that you're Messiah, the one who saves. The one who brings us through the challenge and sees us through to the other side. So Jesus is revealed as king. He's revealed as Messiah. And in the response of the chief priests and teachers of the law, he's revealed to us as a shepherd. Matthew 2, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And and I love this imagery of a shepherd because the king is the one who rules over with authority and the Messiah is the one who saves. The shepherd is the one who walks alongside of his people, who tends to their needs, who tends to their wounds. It is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He's the one who provides. He leads me besides the quiet waters. He restores my soul. It is our Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who brings restoration and rest in the middle of a difficult season. Ezekiel 34 is a beautiful description of how God promises to shepherd his people. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and the the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and in the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land and there will be feed and a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is how God promises to shepherd his people. Listen to this. I will rescue them from the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. When you're navigating a challenging season where your circumstances aren't what you had hoped, where you're navigating a hard moment of struggle, the promise of Jesus, the one who shepherds is, I will rescue you. He says, I will bring you to a rich pastor. I will provide for you. He says, where you feel weak. He says, I will strengthen you. And notice how, as he describes this process of shepherding, he says, I'll lead you to a rich pasture where you can lie down. Now, the flock only lies down when it's free from threats and dangers of predators. In other words, God's saying, I will lead my people to a place of protection and peace. I love how that passage ends. Verse 16, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. Catch this. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And sometimes as you go through a hard season, we feel wounded and we feel broken and we feel like, God, I'm not sure how to move forward. The promise of the King, Messiah, Shepherd Jesus, I will attend to your wound. I will bind you up and I will bring healing. Where you feel weak, I will strengthen you. And the thing is, church, God never asks us to go through difficult places alone. What he asks is to trust him as King and Messiah and Shepherd in the midst of those places. And so this Advent season, maybe you're in that place of frustration going, God, when are you going to show up? I think what scripture teaches us, church, is that God is already present. 
And as our good king and our good shepherd, as the Messiah, the one who saves, he is working his purpose for our good, even in those moments that we don't like, even in those circumstances that we wish we could get rid of. And our challenge, church, is to surrender into the thing that God is doing, to trust him as a good king, to trust him as a good shepherd, to trust him as the Messiah who will indeed bring salvation and redemption, even in hard moments. The last way that I think God is, or Jesus is revealed in this chapter is in verse 11, when the Magi, they come before him and they bow down with gold, frankincense, and more, and it says they worshiped him. And this is the kind of worship that is only reserved for God himself. And so not only is Jesus the Messiah, not only is he the king, not only is he our good shepherd, but this is God himself, God in the flesh. And so you heard Pastor Ryan say the candle that we lit today was the love candle. And this is not like, an abstract cultural concept of love. No, this is the kind of love, like John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a kind of love that gives sacrificially. When we talk about God as loving, this is the good God that when we were lost in sin and brokenness, he sent his own son to die on the cross for us. And that same God revealed in Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, this is the presence of God with us promises us that he will be our king, he will be our Messiah, he will be our shepherd that leads us. So when I say we need to trust his purpose, provision, and promise, I'm not saying blindly, I'm saying we go back to the truth of scripture and we trust his purpose, promise, and provision precisely because of who he is, our king, our Messiah, our shepherd, and our God. Now, I think key in all of this is how do we respond to this, right? Jesus reveals himself as as king, as Messiah, as shepherd, as God in the flesh, as Emmanuel, God with us. The question is, how will we respond to that? And as you read Matthew chapter 2, there is a stark contrast between how Herod responds and how the Magi and Mary and Joseph respond. Herod responds with anger and an opposition because the agenda of Jesus is very different than his agenda. He sees the birth of Jesus as a threat to his authority, as a threat to his power, as a threat to his agenda. And so Herod is disturbed when he hears the news. And it's easy to look at Herod and go, well, he's a weird, like, tyrannical leader. Like, of course, he's the bad guy in the story. But church, I think sometimes in my own life, when God wants to redirect my course, when he says, I want you to trust my agenda, sometimes I respond like Herod, right? Sometimes God is saying, hey, I want to redirect your path, and I'm disturbed by that. I go, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go that direction. I don't want to face that challenge. I don't want to face that difficulty. I want to call the shots on myself. I want to maintain control. And Jesus goes, if you're going to acknowledge me as king, you have to surrender into my agenda. Now, notice how the Magi respond. The Magi receive and respond to God's purpose and promise with worship and obedience, right? They bow down and worship Jesus, and then they are warned not to go back to Herod And it says that they return to their country by another way. And part of me goes, this is kind of a big deal because the Magi were likely uh, royal advisors in a foreign court. Part of me goes, there's potential that that could have been an international problem of diplomacy, right? These foreign royals show up and they disregard uh, this authority figure inherited and they were supposed to go back and report him. Instead, they flee. Like, that could be a big deal. And yet, the Magi were obedient when God warned them not to go back. And they responded to Jesus in worship. And then you look at Mary and Joseph, and they respond throughout this entire chapter 2 with trust and obedience. Not only does God warn them in a dream to flee to Egypt, but it says that Joseph 
got up, took the child and his mother, and went. Verse 14. When he's warned, when they come back, not to go back to, to Galilee. Verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. That little phrase, and he went, that's super important because what it tells us is that Joseph didn't rebel against God's promise and purpose. If I'm Joseph coming back from Egypt and all they want to do is go home and, and, and an angel appears in a dream and says, by the way, you have to go to another town. I think I would have melted down. Like, I just want to go home. Can I go home? Why do I have to go to Nazareth? And yet each time Joseph responds in obedience and he goes and he responds. So I think church for us, there's a question, Right. Will we respond with the obedient trust? Will we respond with the worship and obedience like the Magi? Or will we respond like Herod, resisting and rebelling against God's direction for us? Again, church, the faith and the trust to follow God's agenda, not our own, is found in who Jesus is and who he's revealed himself to be. He is our king, our Messiah, our good shepherd, God himself in the flesh. And so church, here's the truth that we can trust that Jesus came to bring hope and redemption for us. Not just hope and redemption back then, but Jesus is still bringing hope and redemption today. And by the way, there's this little moment where they go to Egypt. In verse 15, he says, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. If you are a Jewish person hearing this, what you know is that Jesus just reenacted the exile and captivity in Egypt. This is incredibly symbolic. When Jesus goes to Egypt and comes back out of Egypt, if you were a Jewish person reading this, you are seeing the reenactment of exile. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, where you are in bondage and oppression and captivity, where you feel beat down and broken and like you have no victory in front of you, Jesus can bring hope and redemption. Because what you would recognize if you were a Jewish person reading this and Jesus coming back out of Egypt and in Matthew tying that back prophetically to Hosea, what he's saying is this is the Messiah who brings you out of captivity to freedom. This is the God who led his people out of Egypt, who defeated the Egyptian army. This is the God who brought you to freedom. And Jesus reenacts that demonstrating for us that he is the one who can bring hope and freedom, salvation. So here's what I want to leave us with. How do we respond to this? And I want to challenge us with three things. I think first, we have to submit to Jesus as a good king and shepherd. And so part of that is, like, where are you holding on to control? Maybe maybe it's your finances. It's like, God, you can touch everything, but I'll determine where my money goes. Maybe it's relationships. God, you can touch anything, but I'm going to hold tight to my relations. Maybe it's your job. God, you can, you can have control of everything in my life, but I would like to hold on to my career aspiration. But if we acknowledge Jesus as a good king and good shepherd who is working out our life for our best purpose, for our good, I think, church, we need to surrender fully into his kingship. And again, I think we like Jesus as Messiah. We wrestle with Jesus as king because he calls us to submit and surrender fully. Second, I think it's this. It's will we respond and worship to him? just as the Magi did. And and worship for the believer is not optional. Worship is fundamentally important. Because church, here's what I do. When When I'm in a challenging season, when I'm in a difficult moment, what I do is I focus and I fixate on my circumstances and then I get mad. 
I go, God, why are you allowing this? Why are you not fixing that? Why don't you ever, and I just get angry at him. What happens in worship is instead of focusing on my circumstances, worship lifts our perspective to respond to God's grace in our lives. And what happens is when we respond in worship, we remember and we begin to recount the goodness of God, the salvation of God, the provision of God. And what worship does is it reorients our perspective, not on our broken circumstances, but on the God who can fix broken circumstances. And, and finally, church, I think we need to trust Jesus as Messiah to know that he can bring redemption. Listen, if he can take ragtag little Israel in the Old Testament, when they are in bondage in Egypt, they are being forced into slavery. If he can lead them out of slavery in Egypt, if he can lead them to defeat the nation of the Egyptian army and lead them to the promised land and give them hope, Church, he is fully capable of bringing hope and redemption to our places of brokenness. So it's a question of will we trust him? Will we surrender in his purpose and his agenda for us? So here's how we're going to respond this morning. The band is going to lead us in a, a moment of worship. And, and church, I want us to use this as a moment of responding to God in gratitude. Maybe you're in a hard season. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're going, I don't feel much like celebrating love and joy and hope and peace during Advent. I'm just not there. If that's you, what I want to encourage you in is in this moment of worship, don't, don't just read the words on the screen, but begin to use them as a prayer in your own life. Begin in your heart to cultivate a place of gratitude to say, Lord, I remember when you came through here and how you provided here and how you brought hope in this place because it's perspective shifting. After the band leads us in that moment of worship, we're going to take communion together and this is a moment where we remember that Jesus truly was Emmanuel, God with us. That the God of all creation took on flesh. That as Philippians 2 says, he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he gave it up. And he took on the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. That, that phrase Jesus King, God over all creation, he humbled himself and put himself under the authority of death for our sake. Because scripture teaches us that the wages of sin, what we deserve is death, is separation. And yet Jesus, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us, he died in our place so that we can have life with him. And when we take communion, church, this is what we're remembering. And this is what we're celebrating. That the God who conquered death he can for sure conquer our circumstances.